Good morning. Happy morning after Christmas. Happy Boxing Day. If you were marking the holiday, I really hope you enjoyed some time with some family, some food, maybe some relaxation if you're lucky. I'm glad you're here with us this week because we got something special for you. A treat as much of our production team takes a much-needed holiday. So last month, you might remember, we produced a series of reports about how 2023 had been impacted perhaps more than we even know by what's going on in the financial world. These segments were kind of scattered among episodes. Well, this week, we're going to play these one after the other, one per day, kind of a way to listen and share these pieces if you find them interesting. Maybe you're taking a drive this week, you want to binge them all. Before we come back next week, with all the daily news you can handle. So with that, here's our first episode in this series, Priced Out. Let's see, is that Dylan? Hi, Dylan. Yes, it is. How's it going? This is Dylan. He's 29 years old. He's in data analytics. And he just moved from Washington, D.C. to Beacon, New York. It's a couple hours north of New York City. And I heard you just got married as well. Is that right? Yeah, I did. uh, About two months ago. Oh, my gosh. Two months ago. Congrats. He moved so his wife could take a new job, and life is pretty good for these newlyweds. He's going to work from home. She's going to commute into the city a couple times a week. Their new combined income is close to 200000 bucks a year. So they did what you do. They started looking at buying a home. And after literally minutes of searching, he says, he realized this is not going to be in the cards. Just considering, like, we don't come from a lot of, um, like, family wealth it was really hard to envision not only making those monthly payments, but also being able to afford a down payment without wiping every bit of savings that we have um, in our bank accounts. If their current rent was 3000 a month, a mortgage was going to be 4000 And that doesn't even include all the extra expenses that go into owning, like taxes and repairs. And, you know, we can comfortably live here, but it's like just that gap between renting and then owning, not even a big house, just kind of a starter house. It's, it's like, it's not even possible for us, not now or probably not anytime soon. Their story is a small snapshot of the housing market today. And think about how a moment like this can change someone's life. Like maybe it affects when Dylan and his wife have kids. If they're only considering places where they can work from home, how might that change the downtown landscape nearby? And what happens when a generation of people in their so-called starter homes realize that they're actually in their forever homes? So starting today, we're going to start this series on how this moment of high interest rates and a work-from-home revolution is quietly upending lives and communities. We're calling this series Priced Out. This is part one, Home Buying. The market is the most interesting market that I've ever experienced or been a part of. We called up Bridget Clarno. She's a real estate agent. If you're selling or buying a home near Cook County, Illinois, she wants to be the one to do it for you. But she also says it's tougher to buy a home than at any point in the last decade. And data from government-sponsored mortgage companies bear that out. So according to Freddie Mac, the U.S. is currently short roughly 3.8 million units of housing, both for sale and for rent. Wait, like 3 million housing units less than what the American people are looking for, essentially. Exactly. So we're already short. And we were short before COVID, before the pandemic. Now, the pandemic changed a lot of things. In my opinion, one of the biggest changes it had is how we relate to housing and where we live. It changed what we needed. A lot of people no longer needed to commute, so maybe they didn't need to be close to their job, but now all of a sudden they need a home office. It changed it. 
It also created this huge surge of housing needs. What this means is more people looking for the same type of home. It's set off a frenzy of competition. And that competition means multiple offers. Multiple offers typically means that a house sells for over list price. Then that price is even higher. Every time a buyer misses out in a multiple offer situation that they don't, quote unquote, win the house, they get even more competitive with their next offer. She says, think about this perfect storm of events here. You got this shortage of homes, high demand, and in comes this generation of millennials, like Dylan, looking to buy for the very first time. They're the most populous generation since the baby boomers. Frankly, if they were all the ones competing with each other, the price would likely settle down somewhere in the range the median millennial could afford. But Dylan's not just competing with his peers. He's also competing with someone like this. It's not letting me open my microphone, so let's see if we can do that. I apologize. This is Bob Wood, who lives in Mobile, Alabama. We are working. There we go. Bob is 66. He's jolly, he's a professor, and he and his wife live in a pretty big four-bedroom house. We have a pool that we actually don't get in as often as we probably should. And 5,000 square feet is a lot of house to take care of. At this point in his life, he says, he's looking to downsize. No need to do all that maintenance. So what's he looking for? Pretty much the same two-bedroom that Dylan could only dream of affording. About one or two undergraduates a semester will ask me about, okay, we want to buy a house, we're tired of renting, and is this the time to do so? And, you know, Mobile, at least in, in our market, it's still a very tight market. Yeah, that's the amazing part of this, by the way. Bob is not just a professor. He's a professor of finance and economics. So he understands this stuff and readily admits he's going to be a way more attractive buyer. With young people, especially that first starter house, they probably don't have a lot of credit. So they already have that problem. And then they look for a house and they're hoping to pay 300000 and they turn around and it's 500000 and rates are higher and the payments, you know, twice what they expected. But... There's a twist to this, an added layer that has jacked up prices even more. And this is really why the last year has been completely unprecedented. See, if Dylan and Bob are both looking at the same type of house, pretty basic two-bedroom, well, the person who has that house right now doesn't want to leave. So when we come back, we'll examine that side of this equation after the break. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. 
Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Okay, we're back, and we're talking about what happens when there's all demand and no supply. So what we call the move-up buyers, people who are in a starter home looking for their second home or even in a second home looking for their third home, the move-up buyers, that's who's really kind of put a complete halt on the housing industry. That's Bridget again, our real estate agent. She says, imagine you bought a house 10 years ago. Now you've had a couple kids, you're ready to move on up into something a bit larger. But in just the last year, interest rates have exploded from 3% to 5% to 8%. You're quickly talking about a home loan that will end up costing hundreds of thousands of dollars more. So are you really going to ditch that mortgage to move into a slightly larger house when it would cost double the monthly price doesn't make sense. So these move up buyers do not want to lose their interest rate. They feel locked in. They have, you know, I'm sure everyone has seen headlines referencing the golden handcuffs of these 3% rates. That, she says, is the real issue. A bunch of 40-somethings realizing together these houses that we thought were our starter homes are actually our forever homes. What was it? Realtor.com, 82% of homeowners feel stuck because of their current rates, because of the competition in the in the market. Leaving their families cramped and leaving millennials nothing to buy, nothing that appeals to them at least. Overall, there's a sense of panic. There's a sense of disappointment in a way. I've had buyers that I've said to them, I don't want you to put in an offer on this house. You don't love this house. And they say, well, we're concerned there's nothing on the market. What if nothing comes up that we love? Dylan, we just learned this week that, according to the National Association of Realtors, the average age of a repeat home buyer this year was 58 years old. So that's someone who's bought a house before. This might be their second or their third home. Decades ago, that number was 39 years old. So in, in some ways, it's kind of these same baby boomers who are driving this market. How does it feel, I guess, when you're poking around on Zillow or whatever, and seeing these spaces. I mean, it's it's definitely frustrating because, you know, I think growing up, you you kind of get this sense of like the American dream is to to buy a house and and to own land, and then you you occasionally on social media will see someone who just bought a house, and you're like, well, how did they pull that off, and what are we doing wrong? Um, so I, I think you kind of get this like imposter syndrome of of what am I doing wrong? Dylan's the first to admit he's one of the lucky ones. The other big crisis in housing affordability is that a lot of people aren't in a position to rent a decent place, let alone buy it. Still, he says, it's pretty rare in American history for a couple making as much money as they are to just be sidelined from home ownership entirely. So what should potential home buyers even do? I can totally understand how it might feel like they'll never get a chance. I, I do think they will eventually get a chance. Something has to change. Danielle Hale is the chief economist at Realtor.com, and she's not hopeless about this. She says one solution is pretty simple. 
build more homes. Our estimate is that we are underbuilt to the tune of somewhere between two and six million homes. And for context, we build a little more than one million homes every single year. So even if all we did was try to close the existing gap, it's probably going to take us a couple years to build out of just the lack of housing that we've built over roughly the last decade. Now, if you're waiting for these homes to be built and waiting for prices to return to quote unquote normal, well, she and pretty much every other economist we spoke to said you should not expect these rates to return to 3% anytime in the foreseeable future. Like, it's not going to happen. However, while the supply is expanding, she says, rental costs should hold pretty steady. And what that means is you can hopefully save up more as you rent. But when it comes to what do you do with that information? <laughs> do you buy now? Do you wait? A lot of that's going to depend on your personal situation. She says if you do plan on living in your next home for a while, it might indeed make sense to just take the plunge now and buy. That even if you're paying more in interest, you're building up equity and perhaps can refinance later. So do you see a world where you can buy a house someday? Like what does that plan even look like at this point? I mean, that's the hope and the dream, right? Like in the next like five to 10 years. For Dylan, he's decided to keep renting and he's keeping a positive view of this. After all, he says he really doesn't have that much choice. All right, that will do it for us today. And tomorrow we're gonna have part two. So share this episode with a friend, a neighbor, maybe that homeowner in your life who's wondering whether they should move and you just secretly wanna buy their house. I don't know. I'm Brad Milky. hope you're having a good one. I'll see you tomorrow. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.